0: Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Today's classic is brought to you by our past episode on women in game shows. Yeah, game shows? Yes. Oh, yes. Because it got, to, I was started thinking about women hosting things yeah. in general. Yes. And that's when I looked up um, the of the Oscar host. Yeah. If you're curious, we kind of mentioned this in a recent episode. Um, 19 of the 77 Oscar hosts have been female, and four of those were Whoopi Goldberg. Only three women have hosted since 1990, and Whoopi Goldberg was two of those. I forgot.
1: Oh, she hosted <laughs> that. Yeah, I yeah. forgot that she hosted that. She did. Wow. That was a long time ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was. Dang. Anyway, was. keep going.
1: Sorry. Yeah, you just
0: blew yeah, my see, mind. See? Blew my mind. That's, I promised the blowing of the mind. Yes, you did. Um and, and then also late night hosts. Yes. I got to thinking about that. Cause right now, and this is only very recently, we have Samantha B and Lily Singh, and that's it. Right. Yeah. And Lily Singh was able to do the double tap of
1: being queer woman of color. Mm-hmm. And so she was one of the first if not the first,
0: late night of those titles. I think so. Yeah, so that's
1: significant.
0: Yeah, but we still have a long way to go. It mm-hmm. blows my mind that we have two white men named Jimmy. <laughs> and then a John. Yeah, very, <laughs> yes. very white. Um, and I like, I actually find it a very palatable way to get my news is the next day, I don't stay up and watch it. right? But I watch the YouTube clips the next day of all these things. So I, I would love to see more women get in Get in the game. Um, and Samantha B actually just um, acknowledged this, called this out, because she did a a piece on how the United States is one of a very small number of countries that doesn't provide parental leave. Right. Uh, and she was saying, you know, because she's the pretty much one of the only women in late night, she might be the only person to cover this story. Right. And it does impact what gets covered and what doesn't. Even um, I know female writers in late night that has been increasing. We've been seeing a lot more of that, which yep. is great. Um, so that that helps. But uh, things like that, in influencing what's covered, and then she implemented a her own parental plan, parental leave plan at her her work, and called out all other late night hosts to do the same because that also impacts how women are able to to get ahead or not right. in in this industry and in all industries. And then we were talking about before we started recording this is a matter of interest right now it seems because there are TV and movies made about it right. of of note um late night on Amazon Prime with Emma Thompson and Mindy Kaling and then the morning show with Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. So, I, I guess we're, we're coming to the point where we really recognize that it's a problem and it needs to change. And I'm hoping that we're moving in that direction. And I, I will put a disclaimer here. I have not seen either of those things. Right. But I know they exist. Well, yeah, I mean, Jennifer Aniston just won an award for the show. So, go ahead, girl. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, girl. And we hope that you go ahead and enjoy this classic episode about women in late night.
1: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about late night television which is kind of funny because Caroline and I don't really watch late night television at least not when it comes on. Right, yeah, I don't I definitely
2: don't have cable or anything and watch late night TV, never really have aside from things like Comedy Central shows. Um and really any any late night hosts that I ever see, it's just because somebody in the office sent me a funny clip from YouTube.
1: Yeah, I watch late night TV most often if I'm traveling and stuck Mm -hmm. in a hotel. I used to think uh, David Letterman was really funny when I was younger, but I think that was because it was something that meant that if I was watching it, I was up late and was watching an adult show. And you
2: probably didn't know all of the information that we know now about his relationships with his female staffers.
1: Yes. All like two of them. Yes. I wasn't i wasn't an enlightened 10-year-old feminist no. at the time. <laughs> um, and the way that I would watch TV when I was a kid is so different from the way I would watch TV now just by virtue of technology. I have mm-hmm. a TV on the wall in my apartment, but it's simply hooked up to a laptop. Yeah. But... This is nonetheless relevant to Stuff Mom Never Told You because there has been a lot of conversation surrounding women and late-night TV in the past couple years with all of the changeovers happening in terms of Jay Leno and David Letterman and the fact that with show after show changing hosts, not one time has a woman been selected. And... The thing that pushed us finally over the edge to say, okay, it's time to podcast about this, was not too long ago when the announcement was made that The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, which I always wondered, how did Craig Ferguson get that role just from Drew Carey? Yeah. He was just that hilarious on Drew Carey. Have,
2: that's right. He was on Drew Carey. He was the boss. Yeah.
1: <gasps>
2: I totally forgot. I was just like, oh, he's some guy. I know his face. I don't know where I know his face from, you right. It
1: was Drew Carey. And they announced that Craig Ferguson would be stepping down and he would be replaced, drumroll, and this drumroll had been going on for months and people thinking, well, maybe maybe this will be the chance for a woman to get a seat behind the desk. No. No, he's being replaced by British comedian James Corden, to which my Twitter feed collectively went, Sigh.
2: Yeah, and you know what? Like I have never um I've well I've never really paid attention to late night in general late night TV shows, but I've also never found it important enough to even think about in terms of the host because I'm always like, well wh- whatever, they're just going to put another white guy. Not that I ever like specifically had that concrete thought, but my whole attitude about it is just like, well, I mean, whatever, why does it matter? They're just going to slide another like middle-aged white dude into that slot. But Because that is my thinking process, it obviously is worth us talking about.
1: Yeah, because while it might not seem relevant to our day-to-day who hosts late-night TV, it's quite relevant in terms of the comedy pipeline. Right, Women in late-night are a rarity, and that, if you are a woman in the industry, is indicative of this broader gender gap, and it's sort of symbolic of how women tend to have to work super-duper hard if they want to make a profession out of being funny. Well, to
2: give you an idea of where we were and where we are today, we have pulled together a timeline from PBS, Washington Post, and Flavor Wire that stretches all the way back to September 1954 when NBC debuts Tonight Starring Steve Allen, and it makes history as the first version of The Tonight Show.
1: And I'm not going to lie, when I first read that, my first thought was, huh, The uh, Tonight Starring Steve Carell. Wait, that's not right. (laughs) Oh, but that would be a funny show. Uh, Yeah, so Steve Allen, though, is largely responsible for developing the late-night TV format, which is essentially a mix of a talk show and a variety program. You tend to have interviews with celebrities or notable people who need you to promote new films, albums, books, etc., along with wacky skits and stunts. I wonder when
2: they start. and I'm sure someone could tell me this, but I wonder when they started introducing like wild animals onto those shows. Because I feel like every talk show or late night host has wild animals on at some point
1: wasn't it really with what's his name jack Hanna, who would wear his you know his His, khakis yeah and his snake and would come on with his snake maybe to johnny carson maybe I, i feel like it's probably carson it probably is and we will
2: definitely get to him in just a second but in 1957 jack parr took over tonight And he actually uh, was not super jazzed about the format of the show. Um, He cried censorship in 1960 after he made a joke about a water closet that was edited from his opening monologue. And he ended up storming off and, like, disappearing for a month.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of incredible. Yeah, he was was like, screw you guys. And his late night reign came to an end in October 1962 when Ed McMahon said, here's Johnny. That's right. That's
2: not just from The Shining, for those of you who don't know. That's actually from The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. Uh, He ended up earning two times the ratings that Jack Parr did. Um... And he was sort of known for being the gatekeeper for comedians at the time. He invited people on, and it was what Rick Newman, the founder of the comedy club Catch a Rising Star, referred to as the holy grail of what a stand-up comedian could achieve. It was career-changing, basically, for a comedian to make it onto uh, Johnny Carson's
1: show. Yeah, his audience was massive. He had 15 million viewers a night, and he was the... Show and uh, because it was so such an important show at the time, it was also instrumental in launching some female comedians' careers, such as Betty White, who did appear in some skits, but more significantly, Joan Rivers. Yeah, man, she um
2: she guest hosted 93 times in the 70s and 80s, and she eventually became the show's permanent guest host from 1983 to 1986. Until they had a big falling out.
1: Yeah, and one thing that's incredible about Johnny Carson in the 80s that demonstrates just how much of a powerful figure he'd become in TV, he was able to finagle his contract to where he was only hosting, I think, three shows max per week. So he was barely working but making more money than ever before. And in addition to Joan Rivers and Betty White, there were other female comedians uh, featured on the show, such as Moms Mabley, Phyllis Diller, who we've talked about before, Anne Mira Elaine May, who we mentioned in our Women in Comedy podcast a while back, and Toadie Fields. So there were ladies in the sketches. There were ladies in the seat, you know, sometimes entertaining. Johnny. But, but,
2: that being said... In the 1970s, Johnny Carson told Rolling Stone that he didn't like, quote, the new breed of female stand-up. And that's a big deal because, like I just said, he was considered the gatekeeper, like the the gateway drug to being an amazing comedian. And comedian Elaine Boozler talked about The Tonight Show with him, and she said, Look, it was all there was in the 1970s for a young comedian. There was simply no other gate into actual show business, fame, making a living, or being recognized. He thought we were aggressive.
1: Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Funny and aggressive. What a combo. Uh, well, moving on to February 1982, NBC is like, oh, hey, we're making so much cash from Johnny Carson. Why don't we open up a 1230 a.m. slot and give it to this old guy? Letterman. That's when Late Night with David Letterman launches. And it's then assumed that whenever Carson finally calls it a day, that Letterman would take his seat. Right,
2: because he's right after him and they actually had a really good rapport and Letterman was Carson's pick to be his successor. It turned out not to matter at all. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. I know, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's so exciting. Um, And then in April 1987, we have Joan Rivers again. We said we'd get back to her. Fox wooed her away from Johnny Carson with a $15 million contract for The Late Show starring Joan Rivers. Carson was so PO'd that she basically, like, betrayed him in his eyes that he never talked to her again. And not only did he never talk to her again, but he had so much, like, comedian muscle in that arena that he basically said, look, if you book your person on The Joan Rivers Show, you can't come on to The Johnny Carson Show.
1: Yeah, so if you are, you know, a publicist for a celebrity, obviously you're not going to uh, endanger your relationship with Johnny Carson, so the show quickly tanks. In October 1988, it folds, but not before a guy named Arsenio Hall steps in a little bit to guest host... For Joan Rivers, and then in January 1989, we have a little bit of diversity happening in late night when Arsenio Hall gets his own show. It lasts for five years, and Bill Clinton at one point goes on, plays the saxophone, and everyone's like, what? This is crazy. (laughs) And that was kind of, though... I mean, it, in more of a modern sense, if you can call 1989 modern at this point, of of a viral moment, yeah, in late night, because. You know, I I think it's it's still such an iconic point. But wasn't that also, and correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't
2: this also like the first time that a politician really went on a late night show and let loose? Yeah. And like, wasn't just like, oh, vote for me because I do these things with my policy and whatnot. Exactly. going on and being ridiculous and playing the saxophone. And
1: people totally responded to it. And so now fast forward to today, and Obama, for instance, during his elections and also as he's been in office and has been, pushing initiatives through has used late-night television Mm -hmm. as a way to speak directly to the people and show folks that he's just Barry. He's just Barry, you know, he's a good guy. He wears a suit well. Yes, he does. For sure. Um,
2: So in the early 90s, though, things start to get a little wonky. Uh, More people are, are jumping in the fray. In May 1992, Jay Leno takes over for Johnny Carson. No. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I already kind of spoiled that because... Letterman was Carson's choice, so everybody was pretty stunned when
1: Leno took the chair. And then uh, from 1992 to 1993, side note, there was uh, another woman jumping in very briefly to the late night show, Ms. Whoopi Goldberg. (laughs) I don't think I, I did not know this. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it either. I was not aware. Granted, it did not run very long, but but Whoopi did get a show, and I figured, you know, this is an episode all about women in late night. And there are so few examples, Yeah, I was happy to just find another Yeah, besides Joan Rivers and Chelsea Handler coming up. So Whoopi folds, and around that same time we have Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher starting up on Comedy Central. As you see, wh- the pattern that is happening here is that more and more networks are paying attention and starting to carve out their own spaces in late night. And the same year, Bill Maher gets a show on Comedy Central. CBS is all like, oh, hey, we want a piece of this late night pie. Hey, David Letterman, are you a little bit steamed about Jay Leno getting the job that you should have gotten? Well, hey, come on over. We have an 1130 spot straight up against Leno. Let's make this late night war happen.
2: And just a month later... NBC premieres Late Night with Conan O'Brien, which is also the same year that Fox failed yet again by putting Chevy Chase on the air. Fox. What are you doing, Fox? Y'all just keep playing The Simpsons.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And then in 1995, the late night programming starts to extend into the late, late night. So you have CBS kick off the late, late show With Tom Snyder, old Tom Snyder. Not of Snyder's pretzels, although when I hear Tom Snyder, that's what I think of. Pretzels. (laughs) Good old salty carbs. And it makes me thirsty for some water.
2: (laughs) Okay, well, 1996 rolls around and we get another woman. Oh, what's happening? What's she doing? She is not in the show. No? But, importantly, she's part of creating a show which you might know and love. It's called The Daily Show.
1: Yeah, this is Liz Winstead, who is a a liberal firebrand and a comedian whose Twitter is very active, if you want to follow her. Uh, She created The Daily Show with Craig Kilborn at the time, who came over, oddly enough, from SportsCenter on ESPN. Yeah. I still remember watching him with my brother Hmm. when I was a kid. Hmm. And being like, he's funny. So then we
2: see the evolution of that show and The Late Late Show because Craig Kilborn uh, then went on to The Late Late Show on CBS in 1999. And then when he left in 2005, he passed that show to Craig Ferguson. We have come full circle. We can end the show. No, just kidding. There's so much more to talk about. Not to mention that Jon Stewart took over The Daily Show in 1999.
1: That's right. And so once we get into the 2000s. All right, let's move to, say, 2006. What's happening at this point is that you still have Bill Maher doing his thing in HBO. We've got Jon Stewart rocking it. We've got the Colbert Report going on. We have Leno and Letterman still duking it out, and recently the premiere of Jimmy Kimmel Live. So late night and late, late night. Completely saturated. Mm -hmm. Totally... Totally all guys. And totally all white guys, if I'm not mistaken. But in 2007, we get... Chelsea Handler. Yeah. She she starts Chelsea Lately on on E. So that makes the third woman to get her own talk show from 1954 to 2007.
2: All right. Yeah. Well, percentage-wise,
1: we're not doing so well. No, no. But then a little bit of diversity... Kicks off to, in terms of male hosts, in 2009, we have TBS's ill-fated Lopez Tonight, starring George Lopez. And then in 2012, Bravo's Andy Cohen makes TV history, becoming the first openly gay late-night host with Watch What Happens Live. And then from there, things start to get really wacky because Leno and Letterman are realizing that their network's... Want them perhaps to leave at some point.
2: Yeah. So that you have the whole Leno Conan debacle. In 2013, Leno announced his retirement for the second time because the whole thing, if you were under a rock, was that Leno was going to leave, Conan was going to take over, and he did for like a hot second. And then Leno was like, oh no, wait. In the interim, Leno got a really terrible show at the 10 o'clock slot every night. Conan was sent away. He was really mad. Everybody was on Team Coco. Now Conan has his own show on TBS. Good for him. Very funny. Um, And Leno then exited again.
1: Yeah, to which uh, Jimmy Fallon takes over. And as all of this is happening, this is when these big conversations of, okay, well, is a network going to tap a woman? We have so many... Emerging yeah. women, not not just like oh, we've got some really funny stand-up ladies, as we have for forever. No, this is when we already have a-list comedic women who yeah. are not necessarily waiting in the wings, but I think people are waiting with bated breath to see if oh, well, you know, you could put Tina Fey in there, you could put Amy Poehler in there, yeah, you could.
2: Oh my God, just a show with the two of them.
1: Yeah, I would just I would just watch them talk. Would you love. watch that late night show?
2: Yes, well, but I'd watch it the next day. Yeah, same here. But that's that's the whole thing with viewership, which we'll talk about in a minute, too. Like, I mean, as far as popularity of these shows, so many people are just watching it either online or on their DVR the next day or whatever.
1: Yeah, and obviously that hasn't happened uh, again and again and again as these the slate of shows has sort of gone through a recent uh, upheaval in terms of the host baton being passed to where... Where we're sitting right now, we talked about the late, late show with Craig Ferguson being handed over to James Corden. We have John Oliver getting his own show last week tonight, which I personally watch and love, over on HBO. You have Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, Seth Meyers, Jon Stewart, Colbert, who will be taking over for Letterman. Letterman when he retires, And even this guy named Pete Holmes who comes on after yet another guy, Conan. Mm -hmm. So you can understand then why when that Late Late Show announcement was made, even though who watches the Late 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 Show? I don't know. It was still a frustrating thing for a lot of people, not just women in comedy, but also TV critics.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you go back and read any of these articles <laughs> that Kristen and I were looking at, I mean, the tone of all of them is just like, hey, are, are we maybe gonna get like a black guy or a, or a woman in there? Maybe a woman of color even? Like, there's Aisha Tyler, like, she's funny. No, you want to yeah. go back in, in time and be like, no, it's not gonna happen yet. And it's also not
1: just women writing these articles.
2: Yeah, oh no, yeah, everybody out there who... Their job is to examine television.
1: And this is also nothing against the comedy stylings of Stephen Colbert, Jon Stewart, John Oliver, et cetera, et cetera. All of these guys, these younger guys, too, are super funny. Absolutely, yeah. They're hilarious. It's just a a broader question of, but why, why is it so taboo for these networks to even broach the idea of a woman host? Because the big argument that doesn't fly at all is, well, there aren't any suitable replacements. Who would we, I mean, who would we possibly put in there?
2: Yeah, I can't think of anyone besides maybe like Tina Fey or Amy Poehler, maybe like Retta or Chelsea Handler, and you know, I mentioned Aisha Tyler, and you know, I don't know, maybe like Amy Schumer or like Tig Notaro, whoever.
1: Yeah, Jane Lynch, Amy Sedaro, Sarah Silverman. Uh, Tina Fey was actually asked about this, I think on the Seth Meyers show, and she made a joke about how the problem for a woman late-night host is that, obviously, you're going to probably age with the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at some point, you know, what do you wear? Because you're going to want to, like, be comfortable and you want to cover your arms. And so you will you need a blazer. And so she said that it'll be Ellen DeGeneres because Ellen already wears blazers. Because <laughs> that's another thing, too, that uh-huh. a, a lot of these articles don't note is that when it comes to daytime shows... Women all over the place. That is funny. Making all sorts of jokes and doing all kinds of interviews and skits. TV scheduling is so gender yeah. divided. That's oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. But when it comes to the late night, eh, not so much. Uh, An NPR TV critic, Eric Deggins weighed in on this and said, quote, This is a problem. It's comedy led by a narrow cultural point of view, which tells everyone the way white males see the world is what matters most.
2: Yeah, and I mean, that's you can extrapolate that to a ton of other stuff we've talked about. Whether it's STEM, whether it's anything, about getting different people's perspectives involved in things often leads to better outcomes. And in this case, maybe funnier outcomes.
1: Well, maybe the networks aren't so concerned about funny, but rather money. (laughs) How about that? Uh, Because... Another argument is that it's not so much an issue of, you know, sure, it'd be great to have a woman behind the desk, but think about your target audience. And the New York Times has reported on how the late night audience tended, and note the past tense, tended to be <laughs> sort of the Taco Bell demographic. Yeah. It's it's younger guys, like 18 to 34 year old guys it used to be the core of that after 11 p.m. audience. But that's not so much the case anymore because that audience has been diverted, particularly by programming like Adult Swim and also Comedy Central with all of their late-night shows as well.
2: And another big topic, especially if we're talking about majority men versus minority women, is the writer's room. And we are going to talk all about that when we get right back. Have a quick break.
1: So when it comes to late night TV, obviously the host is the most visible and the entire show is centered around that host. But all of those hilarious jokes and lists and one liners that a host is reading off the teleprompter is the product of a writer's room.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You get a lot of funny people together. Write some funny stuff. Just picture 30 Rock. Yeah. And Lutz. I don't know why I always picture Lutz when I think of that.
1: But anyway. And Lutz now writes, I believe, for Jimmy Kimmel, either Jimmy Kimmel or Seth Meyers. His name is actually Lutz. Yeah. 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 it's Perfect. Um, This is all a 30 Rock joke, by the way, if people don't know. Oh, yeah. Sorry.
2: But yeah, so the whole issue of the gender divide in writers' rooms really kind of entered the news and our social consciousness in 2009 when there was a big scandal with Letterman that blew up.
1: So for a long time, people who worked on The Letterman Show were aware that David Letterman tended to have affairs with female staffers and that those female staffers would sometimes get more favorable treatment. And all of that news became public in 2009, and there was this whole scandal, and this was also around the time, too, that Jezebel, uh, when Erin Carmen was still writing for them, broke this huge piece about uh, the lack of women on staff at The Daily Show and some allegations of uh, even the women being who were working there being treated in a discriminatory type of way. so there was just this whole whole conversation happening. And Nell Scoville wrote about her experience as a rare female late night writer in Vanity Fair, timed with the news about Letterman because, as she described, she she finally felt like it was time to talk about it.
2: Yeah, well, because she was like, look, I don't want to sue anybody. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. I don't want to cause a big stink or spread gossip. But she's like, there are people talking about this thing and these issues who don't even know what they're talking about. Well, and
1: also, that was the time, as the news was breaking, for women and someone of of her clout to be able to finally put a spotlight on it and say, yes, there is a problem. Now that we're all talking about it, now that we're all aware of it, this is what's going on. Right, right.
2: Um. So at the time that this is going on, there were zero female writers on Letterman, Leno, and Conan. And in 27 years, Late Night and The Late Show had hired only seven female writers who had spent a combined 17 years on staff. And like the male staffers, it was something like 400 years.
1: Yeah, because for a lot of—at least I'm a, I'm a little more familiar with Letterman—a a lot of those writers— the male writers worked there for years and years and years and years. Yeah. I mean, they kind of grew up with Dave. Mm-hmm. And so, the, as this was happening, of course, there are a lot of go to excuses for why most late night shows have little, if any, female writers. The number one being, well, women don't submit packets because, uh, and that essentially is a packet of jokes that if you want to write for late night, if they're hiring, then you think of all these jokes and all these different kinds of jokes that would fit the show, fit the host, and you submit what is called a packet. And so these late-night executives go on the defense and say, well, uh, women just aren't applying for the jobs. Boo! But, but, that's that's partially true. Sure. But it can be challenging to apply for a job that you don't know is available, Caroline. Right,
2: because you know just a lot of a lot of jobs not just comedy a lot of times you might hear about a job from a friend but if all of those friends are dude friends they're going to pass the word on to other dude friends
1: and the comedy world can be quite insular and obviously on the whole tends to you know swing more male and so if you have a writers room full of guys and they're comics they're probably friends with a lot of guys who are comics and that's and so you just end up getting more guys even knowing that positions are coming open.
2: Right, and Scoville pointed out, too, that, okay, well, so there are these requirements for when you submit your packet or whatever, but, again, not everybody's familiar with them outside of this little insulated circle of comedians, and so she was just saying, like, hey, guys, why don't you just post these requirements online where everyone who would potentially want a job and is, you know, funny could actually see them and access them.
1: Yeah, um, but even when that happens, it is true that women on the whole submit fewer packets, or at least we should say that of all of the packets submitted, fewer are from women. At a 2011 panel uh, reported on in Splitsider that was focused around women in late night, the co-head writer for Jimmy Kimmel, Molly McNerney, said that out of around 200 submissions that she would get at a time, only around 30 would be from women. Yeah, and speaking
2: of 30, to give you uh, a few more numbers, there was a 2012 study by the Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film that looked at the number of women on staff at these shows, and they found that during the 1997-98 season, women made up 20% of these staffs. In 2011 and 2012, that had jumped to
1: a whole
2: big old number of 30%. Of the writer staff.
1: So a little bit of progress, but not monumental. And some people listening might be thinking, but again, why does this matter? I mean, in in this case, you're not even the host. You're just a writer. Right. But these just writers are writers who will go on to be writing sitcoms, might be going on to Hollywood to write comedies, might Mm -hmm. be going on to star in comedies. I mean, this is really, I mean, if you can break into late night it can open up huge opportunities to be one of, you know, to to help shape the, you know, broader landscape of comedy and pop culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and and something that a
2: lot of uh, women writers who have been interviewed, a lot of the challenges that they talk about are just the sort of overarching dominant male culture that they come up against in these rooms. The fact that. You do kind of have to shout to be heard. Uh, you do have to be more aggressive, as Elaine Boozler put it back in the day. Um, there's the whole thing about having jokes poached, and you know I feel like this is a thing that women talk about in business and wherever in many fields about, oh I have this great idea, I'm going to say it, and nobody's going to respond or or like it or show that they even heard me, and then ten minutes later somebody's like, oh hey, what if we did such and such? Oh, it's a great
1: idea. And it's the same idea. Mm-hmm. It's just it It was finally heard from a different mouth. Um, well, and, and another challenge, too, of being a woman writing for late night is that you're writing jokes specifically for hosts. And almost 10 out of 10 times at this point, you're going to be writing jokes specifically for male hosts. And not to say that women cannot write jokes for men because there are women doing that. But there are points of reference that uh, some women late night writers will talk about Where their experience that they can draw on personally is just not as male-centric, obviously. Yeah, and
2: then—well, then you have the issue, too, of, like, the fact that you have to—if you are writing for a male host and you need to write things for his perspective, you kind of have to sacrifice your perspective or your female voice or any, like— sex-in-the-city jokes you have tucked up in your brain or whatever. And so in that regard, you know, some women might just opt to
1: write for other shows, sitcoms, etc. Although, based on what Nell Scoville was writing about in that Vanity Fair piece, w- once you're finally getting down to writing and comedy, it's almost as though she, she feels like gender should just fly out the window. Because mm-hmm. there's this thing um, where... One one thing she noticed in writers' rooms, like this hesitation of women even being in the room, is this idea that, well, then you're going to have to tone it down. Right. Then you can't make inappropriate jokes that, frankly, Caroline and I can't make right now on the podcast to give you examples, to which Scoville says, no, you yeah. don't have to be less body If a woman is in the room, you can be equally funny. You know, we, yeah. can, all, we can all be equally gross and funny if we want to be
2: yeah she was saying we're your co-worker and we're your comedy writing co-worker at that we're not your wife we're not your mother we're not your daughter we're on a level playing field like don't feel like you can't cut
1: loose just because of vaginas in the room so speaking of Scoville, who also in addition to liz winstead has a very active and funny twitter account if you want to follow her uh She put her words into action when it came to the recent launch of John Oliver's late night show last week tonight over at HBO. Um, John Oliver actually talked about in an interview how when they were looking for writers and Scoville specifically did something a little unconventional. She sought out people online and magazines anywhere she thought funny women would be writing And reached out to them directly. Yeah, basically reached out to them
2: directly and said, come, come work in late night. Add your voices to the cacophony.
1: You you are needed. Yeah, and I don't, I think they have two writers, two female writers, which that's not massive, but it's still a presence. And I want to say that their showrunner is also a woman. And I have it on good authority, That John Oliver is a fantastic boss to work for as a lady comedian. And same thing, too, with Jon Stewart, which made me very happy.
2: That makes me happy, too. Yeah. I'm glad to know that my random, based-on-nothing assumptions about them are are accurate.
1: Yeah. uh, When it comes, though, to a a more historic writer's room in late night, Seth Meyers has an astonishing three women writing for him, Mm. including... Amber Ruffin, who is the first black female writer in late night history. That's great. I mean, didn't he do like a blind
2: submission thing where he was just like, give me the jokes and all. He ended up getting a diverse uh, writing group because of that.
1: It might have been him. I know that John Oliver also did a blind submission. And I think for the first round with packets, it is becoming far more common, if not the thing to do. Uh, where you have blind readings of the jokes so that you don't go see a name like, oh, the, these jokes are from a girl named Kristen. <laughs> Just throw them away. They're going to be about tampons. Um, <laughs> but speaking of jokes, so like everything that Kristen and I have been talking
2: about right now seems like things are on the upswing. It seems like the younger hosts who have the younger demographics watching them Maybe it's more hopeful. Maybe maybe more women will, will step up to bat. And that includes not only behind the scenes in the writer's room, but also in terms of actual comedians, stand-up comedians who get invited on to perform. It's actually still pretty grim.
1: Yeah, there aren't that many women who go on late-night shows to do stand-up, whether that's stand-up actually on the show that you would see on TV or doing stand-up to warm up the audience. Uh, in 2012, for instance... Uh, There were 49 stand-up performances on The Late Late Show, The Tonight Show, Jimmy Kimmel Live, Conan, and The Late Show. And of those 49 performances, there were 38 white men, 9 men of color, and 2 women. Go, gals. Yeah, but then
2: last year in 2013, Aparna Nancherla became the first Indian woman to perform stand-up on U.S. late-night TV on Conan, and Kristen and I can say that we knew her when. Well, we we saw her perform stand up at a conference <laughs>
1: we, we went to. Yeah, we laughed at her jokes. Yeah, when, we didn't. We don't like. We're not friends, but we could be. She wants to be, and she's super funny. Yeah. Yet again, follow her Twitter too. Follow all these people's Twitters. Um. Uh, but the question again is, does it really matter? Because we're talking about younger hosts. It is a new generation of late night. We have, you, you know, it seems like there's a sea change going on, but. You and I don't watch late night when Mm -hmm. it comes on late night. I think a lot of people watching might consume late night television most often in the form of viral videos. Yeah. That's one big way that Kimmel in particular and Fallon have really found their niche is by producing these segments that go bananas on Twitter and YouTube.
2: Yeah, they're like skits and things like that with guests that are easily breakdownable and digestible. Like, I had a friend grab me and be like, you have to watch this, it's so funny, on Fallon. And, I mean, it was funny, um, but that doesn't mean I want to sit down and watch the entire show. I'm just going to watch this video you sent me.
1: Exactly, and viewership has been declining for late night, steadily for years now. Uh, This was reported on in Vanity Fair, and they noted that, as we mentioned earlier in the show, when Carson was on, he was attracting 15 million viewers a night. And then in 1997, Leno, in the same time slot, was getting only 6 million viewers. And now Fallon has about 1.8 million viewers a night, which is significant because Jimmy Fallon on Twitter has 11 million followers. Yeah.
2: I mean, you also have to think, too, that like, well, what else do people have to watch when Johnny Carson was on?
1: Yeah, that's true. Exactly. They
2: did not have the YouTubes.
1: They did not. Well, so,
2: I mean, the whole argument behind this, though, is that these declining ratings don't necessarily matter as much because everybody's watching everything on the Internet. Like, Conan, somebody was talking to Conan about how his ratings, once he went to TBS, were basically cut in half after two weeks. And he's like, "Ah, I'm fine. I'm happy here. Like, things are going great. Everybody's watching me on their DVR the next day. I'm fine with it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, even the the basic business model of late-night television is downsizing and digitizing because this used to be a $1 million per week operation for Mm -hmm. a top-tier show, but that kind of money is crazy to spend these days. I mean, obviously, there's still a lot of cash that goes into production for the big shows, but a lot of this is still scaling down because the audiences are scaling down and also getting older. Yeah. They're getting older. That Taco Bell demographic, yeah, they're not watching, they're they're probably not watching late-night television. Yeah,
2: Conan reels in the youngest uh, median audience at 32, whereas
1: Letterman and Leno's median viewers were age 56. Yeah, and I wonder if that has gone down at all with... Say, Jimmy Fallon taking on over for Leno and maybe if it'll go down if, you know, Colbert brings his mm-hmm. younger audience over when he moves to Letterman. But 56, yowza. That's, that, that's, that's older. That is older.
2: Ageist. But Amanda Hess is like, I don't care. I don't care. Let them have it. Let them eat cake. Let them eat white old cake if they want to. She said that uh, late night talk shows are celebrity self-promotion vehicles packaged with broad sanitized humor that is highly topical, but rarely actually relevant. She basically talks about how the humor is so broad that it's like, (laughs) okay, kind of funny, but it's really like not. Striking anyone's funny bone to any sort of extreme.
1: Yeah, because they have to keep it super sanitized. And uh, she was writing about this over at Slate and went on to talk about how if you want you know, women in comedy, don't put them behind the desk on late night and cramp their style. Instead, we have things like Inside Amy Schumer, Parks and Rec, and Broad City that are making ladies laugh. It's Ladies making ladies laugh. Now, Parks and Rec is still pretty tame because it's on network. But for Inside Amy Schumer on Comedy Central and Broad City on FX, I mean, they get downright bawdy. Yeah.
2: I mean, Amanda Hess has a point. Like, who cares? Let them have it. It's stupid. It's a dying medium or whatever. But, you know, a lot of it goes back to what we talked about all the way back with Carson. That, you know, a lot of these late night hosts are gatekeepers for not what's funny, But the funny that people recognize. Yeah. So the fact that so many of these comedians who come on board or the writers who are in the writer's room, the fact that so many of them are still male means that there are a lot of funny perspectives out there that just aren't getting heard.
1: Well, I wonder if if there are any comedians listening. I would be curious from an insider perspective whether it would be even more important, though, to focus on diversifying those writers' rooms, because again, when it comes to what those hosts are even going to be spouting out to begin with, mm-hmm. that is the product. So, I mean, obviously, their delivery and some of their, uh, you know, their comedic instincts as well. But by and large, they're jokes written by their writers. Yeah. So if you diversify the writers, then you diversify what's on screen. And I think there were. I mean, I, I, I do think that the comedy we're seeing coming out of the shows hosted by, you know, Kimmel, Fallon, Myers, et cetera, these younger guys, is fresher than what you'd see on Leno of the Past and Letterman, soon to be, of the past. But there's still progress to be made. Yeah. So I, I want predictions from folks of who will be the first female late-night host. Because at some point, if only if only to get the, the ratings boost that would happen at least for the beginning a network's gonna do it it will happen yeah but who's it gonna be who wants it i wonder if these like you know i I wonder if tina fey really wants it i doubt she does she can do anything she wants
2: i don't know maybe ellen does if ellen
1: already has the daytime talk show but she's got i mean but she has the daytime show on lock that's true she does have a huge audience yeah why would she leap over I don't know. Now I'm trying to get into the head of Ellen, which means it's time for us <laughs> to wrap up the show. So, and and yes, if there are any comedy writers or comedians listening, definitely want to hear from you. Any late night fans, let us know your thoughts. Momstuff at com is where you can send us your letters. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or send us a message on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Okay, well, Kristen and I received a couple of
2: letters that we're going to share about our fraternities episode, and I have one here from a woman who would like to remain anonymous. She says, Thanks for the recent story about fraternities. I was not involved in the Greek system, but I'm now friends with guys who were in a fraternity together. These men are not animal house stereotypes. They are business owners and successful professionals. They are loving husbands and fathers. They have vegetable gardens and volunteer in their spare time. They are kind and generous men and they all have serious problems with alcohol. Drinking heavily was central to how they form their friendships and it continues to be key to how they relate to each other. Abstaining from drinking when they're together is like joining a game of basketball and then sitting in the bleachers. Everyone stares and wants to know what's wrong. When one of the group tries to go sober or at least significantly cut back, the others pull him back in telling him, you're so much more fun when you drink or I'm so glad you're drinking again. These men do sincerely care about each other. For them, quitting drinking doesn't just mean giving up alcohol. It means distancing themselves from guys who have been their best friends for almost 15 years. I can't imagine what it would take to change the drinking culture within college fraternities, but I wish the national organizations would do something to help the thousands of guys who carry that culture with them after they graduate.
1: So I've got a letter here from a guy also about our fraternity podcast who would also like to remain anonymous and he has lots of experience in fraternities because he has, in fact, served as president of his fraternity at a large school. So he he went through a lot of the different topics that we touched on, and I I can't read the entire letter, uh, but I do want to call out a few things that he Uh, talked about. So he said, drinking, yes, we drink a lot, some more than others. There is a saying that the only reason sororities don't care that they are dry is because they can come and drink for free at our houses. When it comes to hazing, we don't haze, but then again, everyone says that. I will say that physical hazing has been replaced with psychological hazing, typically with events that are designed to mentally stress the new members in hopes that the shared duress helps the new members bond as pledge class on the occasion that there is an incident aka someone screws up gets hurt or someone gets caught hazing charges are dropped and honestly they should just be labeled assault and battery and then when it comes to sexual assault he says we hate it as much as anyone and personally nothing makes my blood boil more we especially hate the people who take advantage of intoxicated women To say it doesn't happen is naive, but it's something that we as a community need to work on and not just the Greek community either. Just a final note, typically, yes, there is one bad egg. Every house has that one, insert your favorite expletive, who screws everything up for everyone. Everyone I know says that joining a fraternity is the best decision they made in college. The only complaint I have is this habit the media has to only report on the problems with fraternity life. And to answer your questions, The main reasons guys typically don't stop other guys from being, quote, bad apples is because they are your brother. There is always a hierarchy within the fraternity, and typically when you've been involved in the fraternity for a lesser period of time, you feel less powerful. Something all new members fail to recognize is that as the people with the longest time left in the fraternity, you have the most power to change the house for the better. My house actually kicked out all of our, quote, bad apples a few years ago, and while money has been tight in the meantime, we have never been happier as a house. Members need to seize an active role in their fraternity and decide to make it what they want it to be. Fraternity life shouldn't be a lifestyle you join, it should be a lifestyle you create for yourself and for your brothers. Yes, you do join a house for the values they hold, and ideally you are held to those values, and that is hard. But the hard choices are the ones that typically need to be made. If fraternities focus more on recruiting the best men they can, all of this would be avoided. Realistically, there will always be that one fraternity that has all the bad apples no one else wanted. Avoid them. Don't go to their parties. Don't go to their events. Don't encourage their behavior. And they will hopefully go away. Forgive me if I was a little ranty, but fraternity life is something I highly value and hope that it will continue well into the future. And that's not ranty at all. As uh, I actually wrote back to this fellow thanking him for his insight because it's exactly what we asked for. So... Thank you to him and everybody else who's written into us. MomStuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social medias, as well as all of our podcast blogs and videos, which, if you look in our videos and go to uh, How to Talk to Boys, it has featured a woman who has written for Jimmy Fallon. So if you want to see a lady late night writer, in action, head on over to Stuff Mom Never Told For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.